You're listening to the PK Experience Podcast, where I tap into the minds of today's impact players. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and my guest today is Jim Diepenbrock. Jim is a certified investment management analyst. He's also a chartered retirement plan specialist, and he is the senior institutional consultant in a specialized business focusing on providing investment solutions for institutional investors and high net worth private clients. So I wanted to have Jim on the podcast because I hosted a call a little bit ago and he was one of the featured panelists and his input and expertise was very um, well received. There was a lot of people that got gave me a lot of feedback based on Jim's input. Um, and given the volatility that we're seeing right now in the, in the economic markets, for you know, obviously due to the whole COVID nineteen pandemic, I wanted to have somebody on who had some expertise and can provide some certainty, some direction, uh, some input on um, how to better educate us to manage our finances during all this. So it goes without saying, but I need to say it anyway. Jim is not giving advice on this episode. Um, all of this is for informational purposes only. And uh, so with that, let's get into the call. Here I am with Jim Diepenbrock. All right, I'm here with Jim D. Penbrock. How are you doing, Jim? I'm well. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. I wanted to have you on the podcast because so many people have been asking about what's going on in the world right now economically. Of course, we're all dealing with the pandemic, the coronavirus um, pandemic, and uh, but uh, the very next thought most people have is how is this going to affect global economy? you know, our local economies, my personal bank account. Um, and I had the pleasure of having you on a call the other day with some, several other financial experts and your information that you gave got the most feedback from others. Like, oh, wow, that was really eye-opening and thank you so much. So I'd, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to go a little bit deeper with you and, and better understand some of the things that you're seeing and um, how people can prepare for the, the potential craziness that's coming our way. Um, so first and foremost, for those that don't know who you are, if you could just introduce yourself and give us a little background about your, you know, from your financial uh, background, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, I entered the business in 1982, fresh out of kindergarten. And, um, but I started in 1982. I've been gamefully employed in the industry since then. Uh, currently, I advise sit on the board and a fiduciary, all those things to about $12 billion of assets. And um, we work with larger institutions and with high net worth families. Um, and we advise them as to, um, on all matters of investments. Gotcha. So what are some of the things that you're seeing right now um, that are uh, given the global shut down basically what are some of the things that you're seeing now that people ought to be aware of and to prepare for uh, the upcoming financial season yeah it's a great question i think that people have gotten so used to buying the dips in the market that as the market came down over the last few months and everybody started buying again and we've had this relief rally i don't think people realize that that 99 out of 100 corrections look a lot more like a W than a V. And so the, I don't think we've seen the market bottom yet, or I think we'll come back and retest the bottom. Now you may have seen today that, that Singapore is reporting a rebound in virus um, cases. So they're getting that dreaded 
uh, second shot at, at, at viral um, affections. And so I think that, that the market is, has more risk today than people are giving it uh, credit for. Mm. So I'm, I'm very cautious about that. And I'm very cautious about how everybody I talk to wants to buy technology stocks. And the tech stocks have held up very, very well. I give you that. But they're due for a pullback, in my opinion. Um, and there's more to life than technology. <laughs> right. Um, what would you say is the right mindset going into something like this with all the volatility? Um, you know, we are uh, irrational beings at times, uh, as I'm sure you could attest to. And like, so what would you recommend is the right mindset going into a volatile economic climate? Well, for, first, uh, you need to lengthen your time horizon. So if you are looking at money that you need in three months, don't even think about putting it in the market, in my opinion. If you're looking at money that you need in six months, I'd be very hesitant. So I think you need to be looking at a two to three year horizon at a minimum. And if you have that time frame, then, then you can wait things out. Uh, you know, if you bought some of these stocks six, uh, three months ago, they went up, now they're coming back down, they may come back down some more. Normally it would take, you know, 18 months for us to get through this bottoming process. Uh, certainly six months to a year and frequently 18 months before the market starts to go back up. Mm -hmm. So I'd be very cautious about jumping in here looking for a quick profit. How much are you looking at the political landscape and how that's affecting things? Like, does that adjust strategy at all? Does it, does it affect how you approach this? You know, I don't. Um, I'm an economist and, you know, you, you look at the different presidents. There's no data, credible data, that would suggest a Democrat is better or a Republican is better to the market. It's all about the business cycle. So let's take politics out of it because uh, I just don't think that's it. I think the bigger issue, which is supposed to be non-political, would be the Federal Reserve. And the key thing to me is you do not fight the Federal Reserve. So what's the Federal Reserve doing right now? They're buying high yield bonds and they're providing liquidity into the fixed income markets. So if, if you take my words and you don't wanna fight the Fed, you would wanna start swimming in that stream and looking at high yield in the bond market because that's where the Fed is, is um, providing liquidity. And what is the strategy behind that? Why are they doing that? They're doing that so that we don't have companies go bankrupt. Um, you know, it's one thing if the stock goes down, it's another thing when the senior securities, which are the bonds, have a problem. And what we look at, and we spoke about this the other night, is all about credit spreads. And, and this is critical to, to understand that in a treasury bond, which has no risk uh, of default, everything other than a US treasury bond has some implied default potential. So if you look at a AAA corporate bond, it's gonna yield a little bit more than a treasury bond because there is that, that risk that it could default. If you look at a high yield bond, it's gonna, or jump bond, it's gonna have a much bigger yield than the treasury bond because there could be a substantial risk of default. So we track those spreads and when they get out of line, you wanna buy them. The spread on high yield, the incremental yield over the treasury, let's say the 10 year treasury is now, uh, was 10 percentage points. The average has been closer to three or four. 
And so that was telling you that there was an opportunity and, and that's happened 44 times. 44 times the spreads have widened. So high yield bonds yield 8% more than treasuries. And 44 times you've made money over on a two year look back and you've averaged about 20% per year uh, on 44 times. One time, which was after 2008, the first year you didn't make money, you lost 1%. But, but after that, you made money. Um, so I think looking at the bond market and knowing that the Federal Reserve is providing liquidity there and a backstop is a very interesting opportunity if you know what you're doing. And if you don't, please go find a mutual fund that you like um, and, and in either high yield or investment grade and, and know that you're buying some risk. But if history's any guide, uh, you should do quite well. Mm. Um, what would you say in response to those who are concerned about the potentiality of the Fed pumping too much liquidity into the market and potentially risking uh, inflation or even hyperinflation? Well, we had the same concern in, in 2008. And back then it was more about mortgages than it was about corporate bonds. Uh, but they, they pumped in, they bought, a lot of, they bought a lot of mortgages. I suspect they'll do the same thing here. They packaged them up, they sold them to institutions. The Fed made money, the institutions who bought them made money. Um, I know the, uh, one of the boards I'm on, we, we bought many millions, like 20, uh, $200 million worth of those packaged products that the Federal Reserve brought to market and made an enormous amount of money on those. And those are mortgage packages. And my guess is that they'll do the same thing again. And I don't know that it's necessarily inflationary because we had the same discussion in 2008. This is going to cause all kinds of inflation and it didn't. Um, so can the Fed walk that same tightrope again? I don't know. Right. I mean, some, some often saying that the liquidity, liquidity is often to mitigate a deflation. I mean, there, there's actually concern that we're, looking at a deflation, if we look at what's going on right now, and by the way, for anybody that's listening, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I'm, I'm faking <laughs> this to, to, to a big degree. I, I should have uh, mentioned that disclaimer at the beginning. Um, I'm going to be asking a lot of very novice questions. So thank you, Jim, for, for being patient with me on this. But from what I understand right now with the oil market, the oil took um, is actually in the negative rates. In other words, uh, the suppliers are having to pay people to take the crude off their hands, which is crazy to me. But um, do we know why that happened by any chance? Like I, I was reading a little bit about it this morning and it seemed like that was a quite a bit of an anomaly. Is that? Well, you have, you have a few factors at play. One is that, that you know, the Russian economy and the, um, uh, the Middle East economies are built on oil sales and demand has just been hammered. Um, you know, the, the car insurance companies in California are talking about rebating car insurance because nobody's driving. The last time I filled up my tank was three or four weeks ago, mm -hmm. instead of three or four days ago. So the demand has absolutely shrunk. Um, secondly, we were energy neutral when oil was closer to $50 a bottle or a barrel because of the um, fracking that we do. And whether or not you like that or don't like it, I don't care. What you knew was that at, at close to $50 a barrel, we could produce all the energy we ever needed. And that is, is a problem for Russia and it's a problem for the Middle East. 
So they've got together to lower the price. And by doing so, fracking is no longer profitable in the United States. And you have a lot of credit problems there. And a lot of banks have lent a lot of money to the, to the oil drillers. And so the whole thing's a problem. Um, and I don't know that it gets fixed anytime soon unless demand goes up. The only thing I would say to you in the meantime is enjoy gas at you know, less than $2 a, a gallon. Yeah, it's been a while. Right. Um, <clears throat> what, what lessons do you think we've learned and or need to learn with um, the whole global supply chain being revealed right now with this, with this uh, pandemic and how reliable or dependent we are on China to manufacture certain goods and, and other parts of the world for energy? What lessons can we take out of this and or should we take out of this so that we aren't as unstable potentially as we are right now? Oh, Peter, it's just, it's, it's, it's terrifying to know that, what is it, 70% of our drugs are now made in China? Yeah. And, um, you know, when, you, when we can't get the drugs we need because the Chinese may be re restricting supply or using them in their own country first, um, you know, I think that we need to repatriate those, you know, critical drugs and, and all kinds of things that, that we now rely on China and them being uh, good to us. To, to get those products. And, I, you know, we did it because it was cost effective. And we drove prices down. Everybody said, you know, drugs cost too much. We got to manufacture them in China. I get it. But this is the, the other side of that coin. And I, and I think it's important that we prioritize some of these situations and say we just might need to pay a little bit more money to be able to control the, uh, the supply of these things. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, is it possible that, um, that we could compete on price if we made things at enough at volume here at home? Uh, or is that just a fantasy? I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think through technology, we can do a lot of things. But as soon as you have human labor involved, we're never going to compete with the Chinese labor costs. Sure. Yeah, without all the regulations that that they don't have compared to what we do. The, the amount of red tape, um, you know, my family's in manufacturing and uh, the amount of red tape that, that we've had to go through as a family business to get certain products out and the, and the cost and the time that it takes to get certain approvals and, and you submit right. so, something and it takes months later and it comes back and you have to change a tweak little thing and then it takes another few months. It's, there's so much cost that's wrapped up in those regulations, but at the same time, you know, there is a confidence that the products that we get here are of higher quality. Uh, they're not going to poison you. I mean, right, right. there's a, a benefit to that, of course, but right. the balance as well. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens and how, how we might be able to bring some of that back home. And maybe we, we relook at some of those, the, the red tape to, to loosen things up just a little bit. But um, Anyway, I, uh, I'm really, one of the things I'm really thinking about in this call is what can, what can the average family do to position themselves to take advantage of some of the volatility right now? Um, if, you know, everybody's in recline right now, I feel like, um, and when I say everybody, obviously I don't mean everybody, but uh, the, I think the average person is thinking about contracting and conserving and, and creating security and safety. Um, but putting that aside for one second, where do you see acceleration possibilities? Where do you see opportunities for people to, to, to consider? Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, 
Let, let's break that out for a second. I, you know, I think that the, the biggest savings vehicle for most American families is their 401k. Um, so if your money is in your 401k and you're still working and you're still accumulating and you're not taking any distributions, staying invested would be the number one thing that, that I would uh, talk about. You know, if you look at the 30 year return on the S&P 500, uh, it, it is 6.8% uh, over 30 years. And if you just missed 10 days, the return drops to 4% per year for 30 years. If you miss 20 days, it drops to 2.5% uh, per year for 30 years. So the critical thing, uh, thing I would tell you, the biggest thing you could do is stay invested. If, if you're in good funds and if you're in a 401k, maybe you're in the target date funds or whatever you're in, stay there. Don't go to cash. This is the biggest opportunity uh, for people. And also because of the continual payroll deductions, you're buying things cheaper. So the number one thing I could tell anybody is stay invested. Um, critical. Um, how does that, how does that marry up to what you said earlier, which is, um, presuming that we haven't seen the bottom yet, presuming that we haven't seen the other leg of the W, um, wouldn't it make sense to, to liquidate at the moment and then reinvest <laughs> at the bottom? I mean, this is the, the, the biggest yeah. no-no of all no-nos, of course, but it's still, you know, human nature kicks in and there seems to be some logic to that, but help us see why that's not a great idea. Well, the, the, it, of course, there's logic to it. You know, if you could get out at the right time and then get back in at the right time, you know, it's, 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 there's complete logic to it. Right. Uh, but I would tell you that the rally comes when you're not expecting it. The rally comes when, when it's the darkest part of the cycle mm -hmm. and you're scared and there's no way in heck. I've never, 40 years of doing this, I've never seen anybody who has gotten out get back in at the right time. It's never happened. And, um, you know, just, it has never happened. So even if I'm, you know, we are going to have a W leg, um, you know, so it's, what is it? 12 to 18 months, let's say, hopefully, uh, which would be historically usual. Um, you know, that'll pass 12 to 18 months, you know, no big deal. Um, so stay invested, trying to time when to buy back in or to sell out now, buy back in so hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to do because the, the rallies come when you're not looking for it. Um, one of the things that I am curious to hear your perspective on is we look at some of these other countries that are emerging um, that have just ridiculous upward uh, potential like China or India. Um, when we compare that to the U.S. where you and I are, um, a lot of our infrastructure is already built out. A lot of our you know, I, I look at those other emerging co countries and it's like, oh my gosh, there's so many things that they need to develop. So there's going to be jobs and, and you know, uh, a lot of economic movement there. It, you know, I, do you know who Niall, I think his name is Niall Ferguson, the economist, um, Niall or Nigel, I can't remember his name. Um, but he talks about, you know, uh, empire economics, like the, the rise and fall of empires. And uh, I look at the U.S. and I say, is there, is there still room for upward, you know, dramatic upward mobility? Are we already built out? Where would we create and, and how do we continue to produce for a brighter future here at home? 
Wow. Uh, so there's a lot wrapped up into that question. The first, my first comment would be, it's likely true that, that the U.S. is like, a, um, like the U.K. was 100 years ago, like Spain was 200 years ago, and, and maybe we have peaked. Um, you also, you talked about the emerging economies and the emerging empires that are going on there. From an investor perspective, you know, you have political risk, you have coups, you have all those things, but some of those are being taken out. You have some currency issues that you need to worry about. You know, when you, anytime you buy international, whether it's a developed market or international market, let's say you make 10% in the stock, but then when you sell it and re bring your dollars back home, if the dollar has appreciated 10%, you have a zero gain. So you always have to worry about currency translations. That's an aside. When you look at these emerging markets, they have amazing um, opportunities. Um, good or bad, most of those opportunities are in infrastructure. You know, you want to go in, you want to buy the cement makers, you want to buy the telecom, um, you know, and beyond that, it gets really tough. You know, buying a restaurant chain in um, some of these countries wouldn't touch it. But you know they're going to need cell phones. You know they're going to need concrete. Um, those are much easier water and power to, to wrap your head around, at least for me. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to figure out um, some of the other companies, you know, it gets a lot trickier. Um, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Do you, uh, you mentioned the currency issues. Can you help us understand the, the current <laughs> currency issues, the currency wars right now? Because I hear a lot about that and how, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a silent war going on economically manipulating the currencies, um, specifically with China. Can you shed a little light on that, on what that is and, and how that might affect us? Yeah, it, it, Currency is really tricky. It's really tricky. But in general, if you think about the, the, the dollar, let's start with the dollar. If the dollar appreciates, let's say 10% um, in value against, and we'll pick a currency, let's say that the Chinese won. So our dollar goes up 10%. That means that our products cost 10% more for the Chinese to buy. So what do they buy from us? Well, they buy Caterpillar tractors. Let's pick on them. So now all of a sudden a Caterpillar tractor costs 10% more and a Komatsu tractor priced in yen from Japan might've gone down and because the Japanese currency might've gone down. So it creates um, dispersions in prices. So if our products now cost 10% more to the Chinese, they're gonna buy less of our products. And guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna buy more of theirs because now all of a sudden, everything that we wanna buy from China costs 10% less. Mm -hmm. um, I always think of it more, you know, cause I spend more time traveling to Europe and when the Euro was closer to a dollar 20 or 30, it seemed expensive when you go over there and it's a dollar per Euro, um, it's like everything you wanna buy is 30% off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hotel rooms are cheaper and, and goods and services that you want to buy are cheaper. So we want to defend our currency, but when other countries devalue their currency, it, it means that we, they export a lot more. 
and it's all about how much you export um, to, to other countries. And, and that's why we get into these balance of trade issues where, you know, we're um, buying much more from China than they're buying from us, uh, which I believe is what President Trump was doing when he was doing this, this trade agreement, was getting them to buy more of our agricultural products specifically. Right. Um, shifting gears slightly, uh, people talk about the hidden tax of inflation. Um, we're, you know, we're talking about the, the Fed um, pumping money into the system and uh, currencies and the manipulation of those. How much does inflation affect how you go about investing or how about how you go about advising others, uh, your clients? Do you look at inflation? How do you hedge against it? Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to look at inflation, um, and you know it's it's we almost forget about it today because it's two percent. It, maybe it's going to be less than that now, but it's it hasn't been three percent in a while. Um, but let's go back twenty years. You know, and inflation was fifteen twenty percent thirty years ago. You know, it was it was an enormous amount. And you looked at everything that you were doing and it was going to cost a lot more when we were advising um, pension uh, people, you know, 401k retirees or uh, 401k participants. You talk to them and say, look, you know, that pair of Levi's 501 jeans that we all wore in high school cost about $15. And today they cost closer to 100. And if you put it in terms like that, people start to, to appreciate um, the same product hasn't, there's no, been no improvement in it, um, cost quite a bit more. Uh, today, if you have cash on the sidelines and inflation is still 2% and you're getting, you know, next to zero on your um, savings account, you are losing in real terms about 2% per year. And you can't do that forever. Uh, so when people retire, a lot of times they say, well, I'm 65, I retired, I've got to go to cash. Well, to me, that's crazy because you're likely going to live another 20 or 30 years. Even if inflation's 2%, healthcare costs go up at least two times the inflation rate. And if you're sitting there in, in short-term bonds or cash, you're never going to keep up with inflation. So when we do our planning, we always talk about what's the real rate of return. In other words, if stocks are going to return 6% and there's a 3% inflation um, cost, then the real return is less. Mm -hmm. So we always worry about inflation. When you talk about, you talk about uh, planning, how do you go about doing that? Can you give us the 50,000 foot view of what you look at and, and how you develop strategy from that? Yeah, I think, you know, in our world, so there are well-known providers of financial planning um, advice in, in our community. Um, and I believe they do a really good job at, at walking you through, you know, credit cards and 401ks and that sort of thing. Our clients are, are already have that part figured out. So they've amassed a fair amount of wealth or they're a large pension plan. And we're not looking to figure out how we pay off our credit card debt and how much to save. We're looking at what do we do with what you have saved? How do we not lose it? How do we keep up with inflation? So we do a lot of modeling of different asset classes and combining of those asset classes. And, and we look at every asset class we can find. Uh, the only one we really don't use is, is um, cryptocurrency and fine art. 
and we can get into that later if you want to, but, um, but we look at, at stocks, bonds, cash, hedge funds, real estate, uh, gold, commodities, um, and, and create a portfolio from that based on the client's needs and risk tolerances. And you're and looking at a globally, correct? Correct. Right. Correct. Um, what, what have been some surprises, if any, in terms of the asset classes? Are there any asset classes that have outperformed and or underperformed against what you thought they might do or, or what they've historically done? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise for, for everybody has been fixed income, you know, bonds. When, when, when I got into the um, business in 1982, the 30-year treasury was yielding, you know, 20 some odd percent. And, you know, we've watched it do nothing but decline over the almost 40 year period of time. And a year and a half ago, the 10 year treasury was trading at three and a half percent. We're all convinced it's going to five. Today, the 10 year treasury yields, you know, less than 1%. And the biggest fear is that it's going to go to zero or negative. So fixed income has been a, a completely a wild card. And, the stocks have done what the stocks will do. You know, they've gone up, they've gone down, but they've, they've overall gone up in value. And, um, you know, there's surprises, of course, along the way. I mean, who, who would have known about Amazon when it first came out? I wish I, wish I was that smart. Um, but it, it, I think fixed income has been the biggest surprise in, in, in the world of asset classes. Would you say that that's the most uh, reliable, dependable um, type of income that you could look at in, in a portfolio? <laughs> that's that's a that's an interesting question we used to buy bonds because they they would offset a decline in the stock market but today my fear is that that they may be the reason why the market declines once we get past this this uh correction we're having right now or bear market etc um as the economy picks up um, steam again, there'll be a demand for credit. All those things will force bond yields to go back up, which may be detrimental to the stock market. So there usually is an inverse relationship between stocks and bonds. Today, they're more what we call correlated. They're gonna go up and down together. And, and I think that, that predictable yield from the bond market is gonna be very, very difficult uh, to do. Now, contrary to that, you can get good dividend paying stocks, a little bit more risk. But if, if you said to me, hey, the 10-year treasury is yielding, you know, what, 0.7% right now, and I can go buy, you know, good quality stocks in the S&P 500 that are yielding 2%, what, where do you think you'll have more money 10 years from now? And, and I would say to you all day long, by buying the S&P 500. Mm-hmm or by buying the high quality dividend payers in the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. I can't promise you what that number will be, but the dividends will grow about 10 or 15% per year. And the price 10 years from now should be higher. Mm -hmm. And the income certainly will be higher. So, so bonds have a, a lot of risk to them today if you're not careful. Okay. Um, can you go a little bit deeper with that? Like where do the risks, uh, where are they most exposed? Okay, so now we need to understand the a critical concept and, and that is duration, all right? So simply, if you just remember this part, 
duration is a measure of sensitivity to interest rates, okay? So again, if I tell you what the duration is, I'll tell you how much that bond's gonna go up or down. So today, a 10-year treasury, and I haven't seen this map, but I would guess that a 10-year treasury has a duration of about 8%. So what that means is that if rates were to go up one percentage point, you're gonna lose 8% of the value of that bond. So think through that for a second. So if you said over the next 10 years, that you know, five years into it, this 10-year bond, rates will have gone up two or three percentage points, you will have lost 24% of your money mm. if you needed to sell that bond. Mm. So duration is, nobody gets this, of, of normal investors. So we go, when you look at your bond fund, go to the Morningstar, they'll tell you what the duration is. That number, is going to tell you how sensitive your bond or your bond portfolio is to changes in, in interest rates. And that number is going to scare you. Mm. you know, yeah, that's concerning just to hear you say that. I mean, it really is because you, you, you look at a bond fund and, and you find out that it's got a 10-year, 11-year duration because if, if the regular investor goes out and says, okay, well, here's a bond fund that yields 1%, here's one that yields 3%, you buy the 3%. You don't realize how much more risk you're taking for stretching for that extra income. Mm. And as a result, uh, if rates go up, you, you, you get really hit. What were some of the wins that you had in the 2008 crisis? Uh, if you can think of any or, and or lessons um, that we learned during that time period. That, yeah, so I'm going to speak from both sides now. The first was the discipline that we brought to the table and to all our clients to stay invested and to rebalance their portfolios. You know, if you were 60 stocks, 40 bonds, the market comes down 40%, you're closer to, you know, 40% bonds and 60%, I'm sorry, 40% stocks and 60% bonds. So it went the other way and you needed to sell bonds and buy stocks and you were scared to death. But that's the discipline that we brought to the table and as a result, over time, that, that worked beautifully. About now, how this, time? Uh, it took about 18, 18 months okay. before, before everything worked out and you were back to a new high. Okay. Um, so that was the one thing. The second thing is, is when we work with our clients, there's a psychology here that, that is really critical. And I think that clients want to do something to, to take control of something that they can't control. And so they, they want to make some other sort of trade. So for us then, uh, we bought high yield bonds. Um, again, we're going back to the bond market, but high yield bonds were yielding um, 20 percentage points more than the comparable treasury, 20. And we made over 100% in high yield bonds uh, in the next 18 months mm. um, in, in coming out of 08. So we took clients, we said, okay, we're going to, buy more stocks, but at the same time, we're going to carve a little bit of that stock money out and put in high yield bonds because high yield bonds trade more like a stock does. Uh, uh, approximately about what percentage would you be looking at making that type of an investment uh, because of the risk nature to it? Is this just a, a tiny piece of the whole portfolio, would you say? Or you know, it, 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 Yeah, exactly. It's a risk tolerance question, but, but it's hard to find people who would go more than 30% in high yield. Uh, you, you really have to understand the markets before you get over 30% in high yield. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems like a lot. 
Um, I mean, personally, but uh, everybody's a little different. Um, are there are there any particular warning signs that you're you're looking for? Anything that would trigger um, uh, an action on your part? Like in my mind, I think in terms of if we're preparing for a rainy day, so to speak, economically, are there any um, triggers? We talked about um, uh, potentially the, a lot of the wealthy Chinese have invested in real estate in the West coast of the U S and in, in Canada and things like that. And, and seeing potentially that they would be liquidating or selling off might trigger some type of, you know, coming financial shift or change that one could prepare for and, and potentially take advantage of. Are there anything like that, that you're looking at that, that would trigger action on your part? Yeah, I think, uh, so, so real estate is interesting. Uh, you know, and, and the Asian buyers in our market, you know, they're buying property sight unseen. And, and I don't know if you know what's going on in, in Vancouver, um, but most of their, their luxury high rise condominium apartment towers are see-throughs and, and Asian buyers are coming in buying the, the, the apartments sight unseen. And uh, the city ended up putting in a, if I understand this correctly, a, a vacancy tax. So if you didn't vacate or, or you weren't present in your unit, they, they taxed you. So um, I was talking last year to a college student who said, yeah, I'm living in this building over here. So my God, how do you afford that rent? He says, I don't pay rent at all. Uh, I'm, I'm house sitting for an Asian owner and um, my job is just to keep the place looking good. Wow. So they don't have to pay the vacancy tax. That's amazing. Correct. <laughs> but let's go back. Let's go back to, uh, to 9-11. Uh, and, and you want, and, and, and I want to know, what do we do differently in the post 9-11 era? Well, one of the things was they took away all the mailboxes. So as I understand it, um, regular mail volume has declined by 50% since that occurred. So you think about what's going on in this, in this virus world and post-virus world, we're all getting used to doing what we're doing right now using teleconferencing. And my suspicion is business travel is going to take an enormous hit. I can't tell you how many times I would fly to Los Angeles, which for me is a, a 600 mile round trip. Uh, and you'd fly down uh, for an hour meeting, turn around and fly home. But it took you all day to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that happens anymore. Uh, I think that hotels that rely on business travel and business conventions um, I think that they, they need to pivot. Um, I just don't think that business travel will ever be the same again. Um, maybe it will 10, 15 years from now, but I think it'll take a long time. And I think we need to think about, and, and I don't have these answers, but, but the question that keeps me up at night is what will be different? And, and my contention is business travel will be different. Um, and restaurants will be different. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, uh, if they turn the light on tomorrow and said, okay, you can all go back out and eat dinner. I'd be a little hesitant to go sit in a, in a restaurant, you know, along one of those bank banquettes or whatever they call them, where you're sitting in a big row mm -hmm. full of strangers, mm -hmm. you know? I, so I think the investing is the same way. We've got to figure out the companies that are going to do things differently and, and, or companies to, to avoid who aren't going to do things differently. You can think of the cruise ships. I mean, I, you couldn't pay me to go on a cruise ship <laughs> after this is over. Um, 
and and but there are other companies you think you know are we going to buy more things online i think we are yeah yeah that's really interesting and and along those lines uh i'm a little surprised that we haven't seen a big vr th- thing lately like this is the perfect time for virtual reality to really make it stand and you know we've been talking about virtual reality for the last i don't know however many years and there's been a ton of capital that's been flooding that industry to try to prop it up and they've talked about you know needing and wanting to create a quote-unquote killer app like email was the thing that got us all onto computers and internet like and all interconnected what is that killer app for vr and uh, this how is this not the most perfect time for that when we can't go to the stadiums anyway? They, the, I would think the sports industry should be all over that. Where's the, where's the boxing match with we, where we all get to sit at home and put the VR goggles on and watch these fights and stuff or, or a game? You, you know, I don't know who those companies are, but I would 100% agree with you that, 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 that there's got to be opportunity there. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. Um. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about cryptocurrencies, uh, fine arts. Yeah. Uh, the fine art yeah. thing is probably lesser of interest to folks, but um, on the cryptocurrency side of things, give us what's your what's your take on on all of that? Well, I cannot identify a legitimate use for a cryptocurrency. I. I just, I can't. So if you wanted, I understand the, the Uber wealthy have cryptocurrency, you know, they've got it on a, on a flash drive and, you know, come the revolution, they can go to another country and, and they have access to their wealth. Um, I know that, that, that um, a Ferrari dealer in California where I live was, was taking uh, Bitcoin for car purchases but you know, before they could close the transaction, the currency could move 10%, and there goes the profit in the car. Uh, so I don't think, unless they can get the volatility to come out of it, it it's really hard to, to, to manage, to my view. And, and secondly, I can't, I mean, every time I think of cryptocurrency, I think if you're doing something um, nefarious, you know, you're, you're avoiding something. So you're avoiding taxation, you're avoiding payment, you're hiding money, you're money laundering, you're doing something. I can't think of a legitimate use for cryptocurrency. What about as a substitute for gold? Just to hedge against inflation or something like that? You know, I don't, um, you own something that is ethereal almost, you know, there's the gold, I can touch it and I can feel it and I can stick it in a safe or I can buy an ETF that replicates it. I don't know what I own when I own cryptocurrency. And, and I don't know what causes it to go up or demand, down other than demand. You know, somebody starts being able to hack the blockchain, that currency is going to go to zero. Um, so I just, I just felt a, the, a millennial eye roll headed your way. Oh, Jim, you know, what do you know? You, you're Exactly. I'm, I'm sure that's the case. I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. But, you know, come up with a legitimate use for it. I, I don't know what that is. Well, and, the thing and, that, that I can't wrap my head around, and this is not saying much because I don't get, you know, I've looked into cryptocurrency a little bit, but what I don't, what I can't wrap my head around is, per, let's just say uh, for the sake of argument that a particular, uh, let's say Bitcoin is impenetrable. It's the safest, most dominant crypto, cryptocurrency out there. But we, tomorrow, somebody could create a new one and immediately siphon off a lot of the, the if, if for whatever reason it was a better mousetrap so to speak right like 
you could create an infinite amount of cryptocurrency that like the different yeah. type of cryptocurrency. So that, that bothers me a little bit that there's so many of them out there and that there could be an infinite amount of them as a, you know, they talk about the finite nature of say Bitcoin or something like that, but, but there is an infinite amount of potential to create multiple bit, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies, which is, I, again, I can't really wrap my head around that. Um, we all have to sort of decide that, Hey, this is the one that we're all going to, use. I mean, the market would choose that. And I guess like anything else, we chose Facebook over MySpace. So here we all are on Facebook. And you know, I mean, there could be a better uh, social network out there, but we're not gonna all jump over in mass. So I guess, I guess it's Facebook until we die. I just, you know, I, I would love to be proven wrong. I'd love for somebody to tell me a legitimate use for cryptocurrency uh, other than hiding wealth. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know what it is. Um, for, for the wealthier, um, families out there who are looking to, uh, who, who are potentially not happy with their current, uh, management team and their advisors, do you, what recommendations do you have that they might be looking for? Somebody that has new wealth and they're looking to, to upgrade in terms of their advisors and, and financial managers. What are some of the, the questions that they should be asking? <sighs> Uh, yeah, good, good, good question. Obviously you got all the usual stuff, you know, how are you paid? What conflicts do you have? We all have conflicts. Um, and it's a question of how we manage those conflicts in the financial services, in many industries. Um, a lot of people are wrapped up around, are you a fiduciary or not? That one, I'm not as, as, excited about. I don't get too excited about it. Actually, let's cover that for a second because there are a lot of people who say, are you a fiduciary or not? And if you're not a fiduciary, I don't want to work with you. Well, okay, I get that. But let's say for fun, you had, because um, you've already, we're talking about somebody who's already wealthy and they've got, you know, a gazillion shares of pick a stock. They want to deposit that in the account. Now, why would I charge them a fee to be their fiduciary when all they're going to do is hold the stock and occasionally sell off a few shares or donate them to the local hospital or whatever that is, I would argue in that case, a brokerage uh, position makes more sense. Conversely, if all you're going to do is buy the index fund, why do you need to pay a fee-based advisor to do that when you could go to Charles Schwab and for $25 a trade do that? So a little segue there, but I think the things you want to ask are, you know, what is your fiduciary status? When are you one? When are you not? Uh, if you want both, or if you want one, it's just a fiduciary, great. Um, secondly is philosophy. And, and you want to know how this person and this team interacts with you, what their view of the markets are. Does it match what your views are? If you're looking for somebody who's going to pick security stocks for you, for example, we're not that team. But if you're looking for somebody who's going to do, you know, be buying individual securities for you, there are plenty of other good teams who would do that. We're more focused on asset classes and, and then farming out the investment side of that. But other teams are more interested in, in doing the stock picking. So that's a huge difference, and it depends on what you're looking for. Um, you know, you can look into the legal records. And, and you go to broker check or FINRA or all these things and see what is in the, the advisor's background. Um, that may or may not prove useful to you. 
the, um, but I think a lot of it is around what their experience is. What other clients does that advisor or team have that are similar to yours? And then, you know, what other resources do they bring to bear? Um, you know, amazingly, we get more business by solving the liabilities. In other words, can you refinance my house? I've got a condo in Sun Valley I need a new loan on. You know, I, I need a private banker. Um, you know, whatever those issues are, those can be important too. Um, and then, you know, do you have other clients like me? Because if all of your clients are uh, of this sort, and I'm this sort over here, and we might not be a match. Mm-hmm. Um, what What are some of the the differentiators that a financial advisory uh, institution might have uh, that would be beneficial to a potential client? Like, what what would you be looking if you were a client looking to to move your portfolio somewhere? What are some of the things that you might be looking at that a financial institution would would provide over a different one like where are the what are those even differentiators well if you if you go to a um a registered investment advisor where you're going to be only working with you know and you're going to be working with fiduciary and that's great um and you're going to be at a, a let's say it's you know a one or two office shop or maybe it's a bigger shop than that but there are issues going to be around financial planning wealth management and they're going to be fee-based and all that's great. And, but if you need liquidity or loans or that sort of thing, then you might need to work with one of the major firms who is tied to a bank typically, and you got all those bank conflicts, I get it, but you also have those resources. So we're attached to a, a large bank. And the other day, a client of mine needed $50 million uh, in a standby letter of credit, and they needed it in 48 hours Hmm. we were able to provide that and that sort of thing you're not going to get at a smaller broker uh you know wealth management team um you're just not going to get it Hmm. so i think you need to be serious about you know what are you after so if you go to one of the bigger broker dealers attached to a large bank and you have substantial assets you're going to get substantial resources um, on the liability side and you're going to get much better mortgage rates those types of things. If that doesn't matter to you, what you're after is financial planning and, and somebody who you believe is conflict-free and all that, then, then the, the smaller, I shouldn't say smaller, but the, the, the registered investment advisor market might be a great fit for you. Mm-hmm. But they're good um, and bad people in both places. Sure, of course. Um, are there any particular asset classes that you see that are, that are quite undervalued right now? Uh, well we've been talking about high yield uh it it it, i still think it's it's attractive but it's made a big move up in the last two weeks um but you're now at 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 seven and a half percent um additional income over the same yield same year treasury so that's still attractive and and i think that that if you um are interested in high yield that's worth a look, buy a mutual fund, don't buy one or two bonds um, and go about it that way. That, that asset class is the cheapest that I can find. Hmm. What's your thoughts on real estate and where we're heading with real estate? <sighs> uh, <laughs> that was a big exhale. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really tough to, 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 
to answer, I would make some general comments that, that our parents and we have all made money in our homes. My guess is that flattens and, and we don't get to make 10% per year on our homes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, shopping centers, I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. I just don't think, you know, regional malls have the appeal that they once had, except in very specialty markets. I uh, think that, that multifamily housing, apartment buildings look attractive, but they're super expensive. Everybody wants to own them. Um, I think there's opportunities in, in industrial side, you know, warehousing. You know, if you think about uh, where we're going in the future, it's not going to be to, a, you know, a large retail mall. It's going to be more home delivery, and you got to have the warehousing for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what so about uh, assisted living, senior housing? All, all roads lead to senior housing, you know, we, um, and, and so I think that that's, it's very attractive. I think it's a very tricky business. Um, we have a lot of senior housing clients and, um, you know, they, they're, it's a very tricky business right now. And the liabilities and elder abuse and all these things are real concerns. Um, but it's, it's, if it's done right, it's, it's a very good business. It's my understanding that there's not enough supply for the baby boomer generation who are now entering that age. We're far right. underprepared for that. So I would think that there'd be a good demand and, and that would be an interesting possible uh, thing to look into. I, I think it is, but I think, you know, you also have to look at the, the, the again, the elder abuse laws are brutal uh, and maybe they need to be. Um, so there are risks there that, that aren't available. Uh, the other side would be, are you basically saying because it puts a stranglehold on the developers and or the is it is it yeah I mean if you or is it yeah if you if you um, let's say you mismanage um, an elder person's medication because you have to go in and get them and, and, and provide them with this drug and you 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 know you overdose them by accident or underdose them whatever it is and they have a problem you're gonna get an elder abuse um, claim which is which is gonna triple the damages if not uh, more than that. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 when things go bad, they have a huge multiplier on them when you're working with seniors. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I think people are, are hesitant there. What might be more interesting is, is what's available for in-home care. Because I think if most seniors, if they could stay in their home, um, would prefer to. And um, if, if, at least on my clients, they want to stay in their homes as long as they can. Mm-hmm. And have in-home care come to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. Are there? Well, I, I won't ask you for specifics, but I, I know of uh, of a company here locally that that's they're just growing like crazy because they're doing exactly that. Because most of the in-home care, what the guy was telling me, was eighty to ninety percent of the the needs are basic needs. They're not. Right. You know, so most of the stuff can be handled, and for the small amount of stuff that is needing that higher level of care, they can go to hospital. But for the most part, they can stay in the comfort of their own home, which is right. Um, do you see anything? I know you're not necessarily an expert in in this space, but with Airbnb and and some of those things, do you have uh, a perspective on that? I'm curious because I I don't. I just don't see people traveling. Uh, as much as they did. I know there was a lot of upward mobility with that. Um, uh, I had another, I, I did a private call with uh, an investor and he was saying how much he's shifting uh, a lot of his portfolio into that because of the the rates are just, you know, the returns are incredible. 
Um, he opened my eyes to some things where he, he's like, the problem is, is that most people still look at real estate at, at a retail value. He's like, now all of these retail homes are income producing properties, which increases their value 20, 30%. And so everything that he was buying was essentially 20 to 30% discount at full market rate. And he was still getting discounts uh, beyond that even. So that was interesting to me, but I don't know how this whole thing, <laughs> the whole global pandemic factors into that. I don't know if that will change things. Uh, in fact, it may even improve them because, you know, would you rather go stay in a, in a huge hotel or stay in an Airbnb um, that has been in theory disinfected mm -hmm. and you don't have the other people in the hotel who walking around, you know, potentially full of germs. So perhaps that's good for Airbnb. I, I'm also aware of a lot of places, you know, the Lake Tahoe area, for example, has been greatly restricting uh, Airbnb usage. Right. Um, the other thought that comes to my mind too is RVs. I wonder if uh, more people will shift to that because of, yeah, the isolation aspect of it. Yeah. Let's all go buy Airstreams. Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah reinvent that whole industry would be kind of cool. No more cruise ships and go to Airstreams. Um, well, Jim, this has been a, a fascinating call. I'm trying to think if there's any other, um, I only have a million more questions, but I know we're getting a little bit short on time. Do you have any um, thoughts or advice, uh, not direct advice, of course, but um, any other words of wisdom that you'd like to share, uh, things that you're concerned about? You mentioned before what keeps you up at night and uh, that, that you know, my, my ears prick up when somebody says that. So um, what are the things that we're not looking at that we should? That might be a good question. You know, I think there's, there's, a level of complacency with this market that scares me a little bit. You know, when, when, when people come up to me and want to talk about stocks um, or call me and they're asking about individual names, I think there are people who it bothers me when they're just want to buy all these things on a dip, you know, is, is it the right time to buy X, Y, Z? And, and that person's never owned a stock before in their life. They've owned a mutual fund or whatever it is. Um, so I think the biggest, so that concerns me. Um, I would say leave it to the professionals. Don't buy individual names unless you have a high degree of conviction. And um, so one thing I've noticed is that when the market is sold off, people want to buy individual names um, rather than buying the mutual fund or the index fund because they know the story. And, and it's much easier for me to tell you the story about an online retailer than it is to talk about whether or not you should be buying the S&P 500 index fund. Right. And at some level that gives people conviction and it keeps them in the market. And, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, but what keeps me up at night is, is what's going to be different, you know, as we come out of this pandemic and, and uh, that's where I think we need to look for opportunities. I was just going to say that's such a great question because a difference can be uh, hedging against uh, potentially something that, that is negative, but also what's going to be different in a positive way. There's right. going to be a lot of opportunity with all this volatility. As a lot of people may have heard, the most millionaires were created during the Great Depression. It'd be fascinating to see what type of innovations and new companies and new insights, potentially online, potentially virtual, et cetera, that comes out of this whole thing that um, pivots well, all of human nature, which if nothing else is fascinating to watch unfold, uh, at least in my Yeah, life. absolutely. 
Fantastic. Well, Jim, if uh, I forgot to ask you this pre-call, would it be okay if somebody wanted to reach out to you? And if so, where, where would they go if they wanted to get in touch with you? Uh, of course. Well, my, um, my cell phone number, which I always have, is 916-849-5939. Um, or my, uh, uh, I think I gave, gave you my Facebook page uh, link. Um, but my email is always available. Uh, my personal email is jim.deepenbrock at gmail. Um, always available. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you willing to share that and uh, so that people can get get directly in touch with you. That's awesome. Jim, thank you so much for your time. This has been super enlightening and uh, I'd love to follow up with you with even more questions if you're open to it and talk about some other things. But again, thank you so much. Peter, thank you for the opportunity. All right. Take care.